Again, my name is Dan Ulrich with Leopardo Construction. I am uh, chair of the Programs Committee. We also have uh, Jeanette Outlaw with OFS as a co-chair. And our newest addition to the team, Howard Wender with Strata Real Estate. Right here, guys, raise your hands. Thank you. Uh, today's program is being podcast, so if you have any questions uh, when we do open it up for Q&A, please raise your hand. We will come around with the microphone, and we would like to get your statement on tape so it lasts forever. Uh, mark your calendars, as I mentioned. It's always Our programs are always the second Thursday of every month. That being said, May 13th, uh, we are focusing in on FASB 13, which is a new, uh, it's the Federal Accounting Standards Board, uh, a new lease on leases. Under the proposed changes, all operating leases would be reclassified as capital leases, and as such, uh, be accounted for on an organization's balance sheet. So we're gonna have a very, uh, kind of 30,000 foot discussion, very high level discussion on what that means to corporations and portfolios uh, uh, across the country. Uh, June 10th will be our, uh, is the luncheon uh, uh, after that, and that's going to be our Chicago developers kind of Rat Pack reunion. It's a very nostalgic view. We, uh, it's a reunion of 60s, 70s, and 80s Chicago developers. program will be reminiscent uh, with commentary on where they see passions evolving late, late in careers, and uh, we are pleased to announce we have Paul Beitler, president of Beitler Real Estate Corporation, Richard Stein, Senior Managing Director of Mesero Financial, and just in, we have Gene Golub with Golub and & Company, and the program will be moderated by our friend uh, Rich, uh, Rick Abraham, President of Richard Abraham Company. So it's going to be a very uh, interesting uh, program. Today's program, Credit Where Credit Is Due, uh, last month in our topic, we talked about man bites dog and explored how the various perspectives have changed across all the businesses, from landlord to, the legal, to legal, to the lender, to the broker. Now we are going to dig, dig a little bit deeper uh, into the financial perspective and commercial real estate lending, what's happened in the last 24 months, and more importantly, what will the next 24 months look like. I'm going to bring up our, uh, our initial speaker with the opening remarks. It's uh, Jim Postweiler. He's uh, Managing Director in Jones Lang LaSalle's Capital Markets Group. He's responsible for co-leading the firm's capital markets team in Chicago and for growing its investment sales and finance capabilities in the Midwest. Mr. Postweiler has more than 20 years of experience in investment sales, mortgage financing, and sale lease-backed transactions. I'm going to turn it over to you, Jim, to fire us up. Thank you. Thank Round you. of applause. I've got a, a mic up. Thank you, Dan. Uh, my name is Jim Postweiler. I'm in the Capital Markets Group with Jones Lang LaSalle here in Chicago. Co-head the investment sales operations uh, for the Midwest. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the capital markets today. When we coordinated with the Coronet team, we asked about the audience and what comprised the audience. And the answer was, we're going to have corporate real estate professionals, maybe some construction people, but not necessarily folks that are focused on the capital markets activities. And so we're going to talk through a couple more technical slides, but also try to summarize some of the main points with a couple summary slides as we go through this. I'm going to do just a brief summary to give you some perspective of how drastic some of the changes in our marketplaces have been with this recession. If we go back to 2007, you're going to see the activity in downtown Chicago was very robust, as it was in 2006. We had over 30 transactions. It was over $5 billion in sales, uh, $250 per square foot in price per foot. Very, very active. And actually, in the second half of 2007, we were already starting to see a slowdown in the lending markets, which was one of the main problems that we saw in the cycle. 
CMBS market in the second half was starting to evaporate, concerns were developing, and had that continued as strong as it, had, it was in the beginning of the year, these numbers would have been even higher. Here's what closed in 2009, just to give you an idea. Not every market had the same dramatic change, but all markets across the country, in fact, across the globe, followed the same trend as most of us know. And so what we, what we deal with is we've got uh, huge volatility. We had a total collapse of functionality with the lending markets. We had a total collapse of optimism in terms of what people wanted to do, and people closed their doors. I've got one more slide that will just kind of highlight this. And this slide is interesting, even though the key is not on here. The black bar is the U.S., the red bar is Europe, and the gray bar is Asia. So across the globe, we saw this decline. And as you'll note, things went down. And heading into 2009 and, and last year, you'll see the gray bar, which is Asia, actually kind of outpacing the recovery. I, I guess the message here, and we've all lived this, is not only was it real estate, but everything was collapsing. The stock market was going down. The lending community was falling apart, not just for real estate lending, but bank lending. And we had just every aspect of our lives. Corporate contraction was huge. Sales were falling off the chart. And so everyone really closed the doors and just didn't know what was happening. So if we have our summary slide, that, that would be it. Everyone was scared. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And as a result, the market seized up. One of the things that was happening, though, is they realized they were taking on risks that they didn't realize people were taking on. And that could be your bond buyers, uh, the CMBS product. It could be your, your owners that finance individual assets. It was your corporations that were planning on sales and making an investment. And so what was happening was everyone's taking stock of, of where, where are we. And when we start to dissect some of the current status, we see, especially from the debt side, which makes a lot of press for us in real estate, is that we've got maturities coming, and the defaults that we're seeing are mostly maturity defaults, not necessarily coverage defaults where people can't make their debt service payments. And when we look at the chart of maturities, we see that we haven't even really hit the main slug of properties and loans that are coming due on our properties. So when we look at 2011, 2012, that's where we're going to see the peak. Now, it starts to decline a little bit past that, but one of the things you'll notice as it goes further on the timeline is that the middle bar, which is CMBS lending, actually grows. So the CMBS maturities happen in a much greater way in, 20, in 2014 and 2016, and that's because a lot of those loans were 10-year loans made in 04, 05, and 06, and that's the, that's the change. Now, in this cycle versus the other cycles, there's a stronger mentality to amend and extend. And in some cases, it's working compared to the 90s, for example, because we are seeing some signs recover. People's optimism is getting better, and time may help some, some buyers. This slide really shows the reduction in value and the problem that the funds and the individual real estate owners are having. Because the lenders are much more conservative and because values have declined, recapitalizing the loans that they place in these properties is the biggest problem. And this highlights that not only are the values down, but the amount of dollars lenders are typically willing to lend are down as well. So they've got a real challenge to replace the shortfall. And it's usually coming from equity or creative sources. And, and this, this highlights that. If we had to do a summary slide, this would be it. It was a punch in the gut for the funds and the property owners. Everyone now realizes the risk that they took. They've got shortfalls, and they've got, they've got real challenges to recapitalize and stay alive in what they want to try to do. We see this across, across the board. Some groups have money, and they've still been on the sidelines 
wait, waiting to figure out when to deploy. Now, what's interesting is we are starting to see some signs of life. And if you follow, for example, the CMBS market, they evaporated. That was a major component of lending in 06 and 07 that totally went away in our marketplace. And those companies laid off their whole divisions. What we have now is we have some groups, JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, restarting their CMBS lending groups. And so we do see some of those lenders coming back in that market. And when we talk to our mortgage brokerage guys, we're now getting quotes from CMBS. So that's a sign of life. We also know that the REITs have been one of the leaders in recapitalizing their balance sheets through equity offerings that were positively received in the marketplace. So when we look at those guys, their share prices have responded. They've recapitalized their balance sheets and stabilized their companies. And so that's been kind of positive. And even for us in our business now, we're starting to see companies say, you know what, let's see if we can go to market. Maybe we'll take this number. The expectations of the sellers are getting much closer to what the buyers are willing to pay. So what do we have right now if we had to summarize that? It's a matter of timing. What we have is people are trying to figure out whether or not now is the time to start reasserting themselves in the marketplace. Is it too early to start investing? Because on one hand, when you look at some of the balance sheets, it's overloaded with debt. They've got a lot of problems that don't have foreseeable f solutions. On the other hand, we do have groups that have a lot of money that want to buy. Their gut check is, hey, you know, prices are low. Let's get in now because our outlook is now improving. The big question in all of this, and this is something we all look at, is employment. Because a driver in our business is corporate expansion, occupancy, and filling that space. The longer you sit with empty space, the more it costs you, the more your returns are hurt. So timing, especially for opportunistic investors, is very, very important. And they're just deciding what to do. If we look at a kind of a timeline and start to see where we are in the cycle, most investors right now believe we have hit the bottom. We have seen the maximum amount of vacancy. We have seen the lowest rates. Um, and we're positioning ourselves for a more positive outlook. And this just kind of shows some of the trigger points that people look at. I know in our business, and we do investment sales, we have seen a return of the lenders, which definitely helps values because it's positive leverage. So the values, so if you're an equity investor, you're seeking a certain return on your equity, you can hit that return and pay a higher price if you have a good loan. And we're seeing that come back. So the, the prices are coming up. It's very, it's very selective, but it's, it's happening. So we do have signs of, of, of positive movement. These are some of the points I mentioned. I think the, the one main thing that we're also going to see is much more caution. Part of the big burn that happened during this recession were your, your securities buyers, your life insurance companies, and some of your funds buying CMBS bonds that were rated investment grade by Moody's and Duffin Phelps and things like that. They assumed certain uh, safety based on the investment grade ratings that they were getting that wasn't there. So there's, there's a return to the market, but it's got a, a lot of caution. Underwriting is much more severe, and they're picking their spots. It's primary markets. It's not secondary markets. It's core revenue streams with good credit. It's not uh, you know, low credit companies that are in a niche that may, is questionable, for example. So if we had to summarize that point, this would be it. Due diligence from the buying community and from the funds is increasing substantially, or the underwriting is being much more conservative. But we are seeing this movement towards st sticking the toe in the water. It's just very cautious and it's very selective. If you happen to have a property or, or an opportunity that's within the, 
the parameters that people want, um, you, you will see very good activity right now. Uh, commercial real estate is not the next shoe to drop. When you look at our segment in relation to the broad economy, we didn't have the overconstruction that we had in the last cycle, like in the 90s, for example, where, where developers went wild. What we had was cautious development, but more severe corporate contraction. And as we go through the process and values get adjusted, we're going to see that this, our industry is in a much better position, especially when we look at the type of space companies want. Our vacancies in a lot of markets are in the 20s, but if you look at good quality space, we already see pockets like in Minneapolis and some pockets in St. Louis and even in Chicago where vacancies aren't that strong. Uh, we're going to talk about downtown. If you're a big tenant downtown, there aren't that many great choices for a 200,000-foot tenant. And so there are certain areas already where you're kind of eyeballing, hey, this, we need to position ourselves, and you're not going to get the bargain basement deal that you thought you might get. I'm just about finished. This is the last one. What's, what's in store for the future? And it's going to come back to how we perceive the different components of the economy and the economic news that we're seeing. It's, it's a function of how we perceive the unemployment rates in relation to the vacancy rates and in relation to the health of the balance sheets that are giving us and our competitors certain ability to move ahead. And so some people are more aggressive. We, we had a, an empty building sale in a vacant market. A year ago, we would have been very happy to have a couple buyers. We had 12 strong institutional groups. Lenders won't finance them. They're going to write checks. And these groups are saying, hey, we think it's the right time to buy. The price is way below replacement cost, and they're going to make, they're going to make a bet moving forward. And we're starting to see that. So although some people have really difficult stories and are still fighting the battles, we're starting to see groups that are now trying to put themselves in a position to take advantage of the downturn and move, and move forward. And that's, that's all I have. Thank you. Everyone enjoying their lunch? Well, that was very good, Jim. Uh, first off, um, tell you a little bit about ourselves. I mean, we, we are approaching the market from a somewhat different perspective. Um, you know, to some extent, we're out of place here. Um, won't be the first time we're out of place. Um, but um, our approach is more on the, the bank side of the equation at Clark Street Capital. Uh, we really do two main things. Uh, we help banks get their arms around their legacy real estate portfolios. And uh, we also do loan sales. And I think as you kind of look at the market today, you know, roughly 50% of all the outstanding real estate loans are held by banks on their balance sheet. You know, CMBS, even at its peak, was never more than 25% of the outstanding real estate debt. And uh, I think it's quite apparent when you look at the market that you know, the, the problems in the past, to some extent, are really, really driving the future. Uh, one question we get asked about a lot is, is the bid-ask spread. Um, you know, as uh, Jim pointed out, uh, we're, we're not in the second inning of a commercial real estate slump. Uh, we're probably further down the line. Uh, what we would say is the vast majority of the decline in commercial real estate has already happened. It's just 20 to 30% of the people believe it. 
And if you look at the Chicago market for a second, there's plenty of listings. There's plenty of people marketing properties, you know, at prices that are, you know, a 10 to 20% discount from 2007 levels. But those deals really aren't trading. And uh, if you can kind of look at this chart here, you can see kind of where we were. Uh, we essentially had a dramatic increase in prices and this cheap financing came and went. And uh, one thing we would argue is this was all a national phenomenon. Um, the cheap financing affected everywhere. I mean, it, in, a, in a previous life, we, we financed Dollar Generals in the middle of Missouri that had increase in value in, by 60% in five years. Um, all the financing was a national thing, a national phenomenon. So um, when deals are trading, you're, you're seeing a uh, pretty healthy discount from 07 levels, 55% uh, on your distressed assets, 35% uh, on your healthy, and then 41% overall. For three straight months, the Moody's index for commercial real estate has actually increased. So we are definitely flattening out. Um, and this is kind of where we were. I mean, basically, all your growth in commercial real estate prices was all finance-driven. Uh, there was really no real rent growth, except in some markets like New York City, um, which will be worse off because you had actual rent growth. But basically, 02 to 07, zero rent growth, real rent growth, and all the cheap financing. Um, so kind of getting back to the, the problems, um, you know, that affects the banks organically. Um, you know, we are seeing huge, huge problems uh, nationally and particularly locally. Uh, there are approximately 25 to 50 banks in the Chicago area that will probably go into receivership in the next uh, two years. And that's going to mean there's going to be less competition and ultimately it will be tougher to get financing uh, on real estate. This, this survey came out fairly recently. On average, banks are recovering you know, approximately 59% on their problem assets, uh, which is completely unheard of. Uh, you know, normally, the way banks' balance sheets are set up, you make a loan at 75, 80% LTV and it goes bad, maybe you lose 5 to 10%. Uh, unfortunately, right now, the losses that are happening on banks' balance sheets just far exceed what anyone's anticipated. Um, most banks have taken write-downs but they still have a long way to go. Um, and I would say Chicago banking in particular, maybe next to Atlanta to be one of the unhealthiest markets. Um, you know, so it is, there's gonna be a number of pain and um, right now the OCC is, is uh, restarting its commercial real estate guidance and gonna make it very difficult for banks to lend on commercial real estate. So we still have a difficult financing environment for commercial real estate largely driven by the mistakes of the past. Um, the fundamentals are getting better, but we still, we still have a, a way to go. Um, so that's kind of where we see the market right now. Uh, Aaron, you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Aaron Lansky. I'm a director at BMO Capital Markets. Um, we're part of the Bank of Montreal family, which also includes Harris Bank locally. Uh, in the real estate group at Pimo Capital Markets, we focus on uh, REITs and the large uh, private equity real estate funds, uh, do everything from providing debt capital as well as equity, and um, 
uh, private equity as well. Um, and uh, you know, I think for for what we've been seeing, uh, you know, I think it's pretty consistent with what both uh, John and um, and uh, Jim uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, have been saying. And but I think because of our focus, it's a little bit different. Uh, the REITs have been very active in the public markets and um, really uh, improved their balance sheets, which made them look a lot better from a credit perspective. Um, and uh, going back to Jim's uh, slide on the credit underwriting, clearly, you know, we've see, seen tightening there as well. Um, but again, for um, some of the larger uh, uh, real estate firms that have access to multiple areas of capital, um, they've been able to uh, satisfy those uh, new standards. Hi, <clears throat> my name is uh, Rick Baer. I'm a senior vice president with Bank of America Commercial Real Estate Banking. Our group focuses on private developers and investors in the commercial real estate area. We deliver the wide range of services of the bank from debt to treasury services, derivatives, investment banking services, where the clients need. I would say the thing that has really struck out, uh, stuck out to, to us over the last 18 months is the lack of demand for debt. There are uh, banks that are in the market able to lend, ourselves included, but the transaction activity has been very low. There's no new development activity, I think for obvious reasons, because of the state of the economy. Um, but on the transaction side, and Jim's slide really summed it up, 2002 you know, to 2008, from 30 transactions to one, there has not been any um, trading of properties. So as we sit in our pipeline meetings talking about deals, you know, there just has not been a lot of new demand, demand for new deals. We're, of course, focused a lot right now on restructuring, modifying, and extending our existing loans and trying to improve the credit quality of those. So Rick, um, is Bank of America lending on new projects? If I'm a, a uh, credit-worthy borrower and got no relationship with Bank of America, you and I meet, are you financing new borrowers and new projects? Well, it's a um, yes and no. Um, I would say that the focus, first and foremost, is on our existing clients, that they're the, really the priority that we you know, delivered the capital to. We're looking for real estate that's going to be leased and cash flowing. We want to see equity in the deals. We want to see strong sponsorship in terms of track record of that developer. We want to see um, a strong guarantor, whether that's an individual, an entity, a corporation. Um, so we're going to be focused on that. They're really, the, the four major food groups of office, industrial, retail, or retail and apartments, um, and you know that's going to be our focus for prospective clients. We'll certainly evaluate them, but they're going to get a much tougher look. And right now, the, the capital is the focus is to allocate to our existing clients. That's a good way to say no. <laughs> no, I, 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 I disagree. We would, I mean, for the right. You know, if we have a very well-capitalized prospect coming in who has uh, a, a great balance sheet, um, you know, has a, a leased building or a building to build and has a track record, absolutely, we would, we would welcome that. Because the fact is, at some point, we need to be building up our book. A lot of our loans have paid off, have been restructured, written off, and so we need to um, rebuild our portfolio. Jim, uh, Sam Zell has 
opined recently that there's no reason ever develop property in the Chicago area. Um, probably not for the next, I think he said two decades. Um, do you agree with him? Is he here? <laughs> I don't think so. No, no. Uh, there's a couple of things that are, are really different and already telling about the market. And there are certain pockets where it's clear before 10 or 15 years there will be another building. Uh, if you're a large tenant downtown, as I mentioned earlier, there aren't that many choices. If you look in some of the submarkets, uh, Minneapolis has a submarket that's 12% vacant. St. Louis has a submarket that's only 11% vacant. Once corporations start to expand, there are going to be pockets immediately that won't be able to satisfy a need that'll be there, especially for good quality space. And one of the other differences, we hear a lot of this reference to rental rates being, well, geez, the rental rates today are what they were 20 years ago. And uh, everybody says, geez, you know, we projected all this growth and we made all these mistakes. And a lot of that's true. The, the one difference is, as soon as com companies start to grow and absorb the areas of vacancy, and, and in some of these pockets it's already not that large, uh, we're going to see some really quick, large spikes in rent. And the reason is, new construction costs are a lot higher than they were 10 and 20 years ago. So if you're going to build a Class A building, you're spending two to $300 a foot. Whereas in the last cycle in the 90s, you might have been 150 bucks, 170 bucks a foot. And so as soon as we start to get that pressure, that's going to start ramping up uh, rental rates. And, and we will see rising rates happen very quickly. And in some of those pockets, there will be a need for a new building. And, and even with some of the, the corporations, I mean, they know that they want a special building and, and they're pretty uh, focused on having something new and tailored to them. So it, it'll happen more quickly than 10 years. And, okay. and to your point, Jim, <clears throat> yeah, some of the large corporations went the brand new space, the, the efficient space, technologically, um, you know, advanced space. If you have two or three tenants that can, you know, create 800,000 square feet, a million square feet of pre-leasing, you can probably finance that, but it's going to have to be substantially pre-leased probably to get into the, you know, get financed in the bank market. And there certainly are a couple of developers out there with sites ready, ready and waiting to go. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, you are uh, an expert in financing uh, the REITs and the large private equity firms that have been able to successfully raise capital. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the REITs have been doing over the past 12 to 18 months and to kind of position themselves for what should be a great opportunity to acquire assets at attractive prices? Well, I think uh, for most of 2009 they, uh, and first quarter of this year, they've been very active in the capital markets, uh, raising uh, equity and bringing uh, down the level of debt so that way they can take advantage of situations that are out there. Um, I think if you ask a lot of them, they're still waiting to, you know, uh, go after those opportunities. There, there hasn't been a ton of stuff out there, um, but uh, clearly they're all positioned for 2010, 11, 12 to take advantage of as things arise. So, Rick, back to you. Um, you know, I, I know that every deal is different, and assuming I'm a current customer of Bank of America, um, what would, uh, what, what typical, I, I know every deal isn't vanilla, but what's kind of a, what's the market right now uh, for, for financing a 
uh, a project that, that meets all the debt service coverage requirements, strong sponsorship, et cetera. I mean, clearly we're not going to see the leverage we saw in 07, 08, but right. maybe you can opine on that. Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I think the one big difference will be the equity that's in the deal a couple of years ago is 20, 15% of cost. Now it's going to be 35%, 40% higher. It's going to be much more equity required. The big change would be in the pricing. Um, back in the pre-2007 era, um, pricing became very aggressive. And I would say in a um, normalized market, in the beginning of the 2000s, you know, it, pricing was 2 to 250 over LIBOR. It was going down to 150 and even lower because the banks were getting so aggressive to win the deals. Well, the market's been repriced significantly over the last 18 months. And today, the bank debt is being priced at 350 to 400 over LIBOR. And in most cases, there's a, a floor put in so that the minimum rate would be that borrowers paying is four and a half to five percent. So the the you know the, the cost of their capital has gone up. I think still still historically, five percent real estate debt is is pretty good, but it was getting down to very low levels. So um, today that you know there's a focus on not only the, the equity and the sponsorship, it's gotta be leased, it has to be leased to good tenants with long, you know, good leases. All those things. I think it's really returned to the fundamentals, and really, there's a lot of drilling down into all these details. Well, the other, just to add one thing, the other, the other big obstacle that's developed is the exit. And if you have a good transaction, and we've seen over the last 18, 24 months in this market, there have been some very good transactions with credit tenants, um, good markets, good buildings that couldn't get financed long-term leases because the exit wasn't there. And if you have a construction lender that's coming in, maybe it's a construction mini perm with maybe two or three or four years past that point. But if it's a long-term project, they need to know that there's somebody there to take them out at the end of the day. And that's also been a problem to get some kind of reliable forward so that the construction lender can get comfortable that he's in and getting out. And that's another huge change that's happened in this, in this cycle. And it stopped some good projects. It stopped some very quality projects. And Aaron, that would seem to favor uh, the, the REITs, the lower leverage environment. I mean, I, I think if, if I recall, the REITs were net sellers in 07 and 08, and generally REITs lend, what, 40 to 50% or what, I mean, what's, what's typical? In terms of their uh, debt. The debt uh, to equity. Debt, yeah. They've typically uh, been at those levels, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, you've had some that have gone a bit higher and, and have to recapitalize. I think a lot of them now are targeting you know, 50% uh, or less, um, ideally probably inside 40%. And, um, you know, obviously from a pricing standpoint, it, it uh, bodes well for them. You mentioned before, uh, Rick, on pricing, and, and from a historical standpoint, 5% doesn't sound bad. And, you know, I think the concern is what happens when rates start moving up, the base rate, the, the LIBOR rates for anything that's floating rate. And, you know, Hopefully, when that starts to happen, it's because there's a pickup in economic activity, and perhaps that things have started to unfreeze even further on the credit side to make it more competitive, bring spreads in. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, to kind of address the um, the banking side on with respect to financing, uh, we you know we talked about banks doing 50% of the, the real estate lending. Uh, the the community and regional banks. 
did an awfully disproportionate share of the real estate lending in the last cycle. And uh, our CMBS friends uh, took many of the high quality real estate projects and the bank's balance sheets were, were stuck with a lot of the more challenging transitional projects and certainly uh, value added uh, projects are, are, are tough right now. Um, the number I've heard is of the bank's 10 billion or less in assets, um, which in, in, in total they did roughly 50% of the real estate lending. So you have a disproportionate share of real estate lending done by the community and regional banks. Uh, the larger institutions such as Bank of America and so on were more diversified. And um, so you're, the difficult part is getting the financing to get to a level where you can get financing from an insurance company or you know, the stabilized permanent financing market. But um, any thoughts on that? Or, on I guess there are a couple things. One, you, know, you had the uh, other mention about uh, recovery rates and loans. And in the same study, I believe, from uh, Real Capital Analytics, they really distinguish by the type of lender from the national and, and large regional lenders versus uh, more of the local uh, um, lenders and the recovery, the issues of recovery seem to be very much on the, uh, on the smaller end of the scale, you know, in terms of lending institution. Um, I think for the larger ones it was around 90%, I think is what they were quoting before. Um, and so I think in terms of who's going to have the healthier balance sheets to continue lending, it's certainly with the larger uh, lending institutions at this point, um, you know, have been hearing from uh, the life companies that they're, you know, becoming active and, and you know, I think you're going to see kind of a gradual pickup as people start to look at trying to rebuild their loan book. A lot of things have paid down and, you know, now it's time to start growing. The secondary, as the lenders start to return to the market, and investors for that matter, primary markets are the number one choice. They're deeper, there's more chance of really evaluating an equilibrium where in a smaller market it's just so more exposed to up and down based on maybe a one large employer. And so as we've seen the lenders come back, they, they really prioritize doing deals, institutional ones especially, in primary markets. And the secondary ones are the ones that have seen much more drastic value declines in, in most cases and then also have had much more difficulty in recapitalizing. The one benefit of CMBS is they will go to secondary markets and they'll underwrite that transaction but you can start to get financing in some of those areas with the return of CMBS. And that's, that's been part of this stop and fit and start recovery that we've seen. It's been very uneven. And there's, there's really emerging some haves and have nots as we kind of you know, build ourselves back into a, a viable you know, niche. And to your point, Jim, the CMBS market did create a lot of liquidity for <clears throat> initially when it came out in the 90s for the Class B and Class C assets in the, in the smaller markets. Um, and, and because it just dried up about two years ago, it really took all this liquidity out of the market that the banks were relying on for takeouts on their construction loans or owners were using that as a way to refinance uh, property once it was stabilized. And that remains to me one of the kind of questions out there is, you know, it, it's coming back but very in very small steps, but is there some other liquidity vehicle, debt vehicle out there? I'm not sure. but. That's really what sort of locked up the market. And, and we've got these maturities, as Jim's slide point out, coming up um, and you know, having to deal with those. And it's the big issue 
the borrowers always will talk about a CMBS is that you're dealing with a special servicer if you're trying to extend and modify the loan. They're not very responsive, they're very bureaucratic, they do everything by the book versus a bank or life company that will try to you know, negotiate terms to make it provide some flexibility. So that is the question with all the CMBS maturing, what happens and how do we get through it? Mm -hmm. And you know, part of it's a um, amend and extend, but you know, we'll, time will tell. Yeah, n none of this is happening very quickly. I mean, it sounds like uh, everyone's got a vested interest to delay a lot of the uh, problems. Uh, for example, in Cook County, uh, most of the foreclosures didn't really start until November. And it's taking about at least 18 months for a lender to get fee simple title to a property. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of buyers out there that are just waiting for this overhang of problem assets to go from the over leveraged buyer to the bank. And even if it gets to the bank, the bank's got to be a position in which the bank can transact. Um, you know, one thing we're asked about all the time is, well, the banks want to sell loans because it raises capital. And I said, well, <laughs> very few banks have their problem assets at a level that really allows them to transact um, without taking a loss. Um, you know, the, the way that, that, that banks work and from a regulatory capital perspective, everything is sort of looking backwards while the market is looking forward. Uh, a bank will typically value a non-performing loan at 92% of the appraised value. And I don't know anyone in this room that would buy a property at 92% of appraised value. So you, know, you do have that, that overhang of problem legacy assets, whether it's the maturities and the CMBS sides, whether it's the non-performing bank loans. But I um, thought maybe we, we could open it up and make sure you want to touch on that as, as, as the, the, the continued problem, this overhang of problem assets. Well, I think part of it, you're, you know, a lot of the publicity is on upcoming debt maturities that are out there and the rising level of defaults on, on the commercial real estate. Um, and I think when you're talking about where those problem areas are from, the, uh, the, you know, which lender segment that's coming from, the CMBS market, you can't even amend or talk about uh, making any changes to the loan until you're in, in actual default. Um, if you're talking about some of the community banks that uh, perhaps are struggling themselves, their, their hands could be tied by the, uh, the regulators. So, you know, it kind of depends, you know, where you've got to uh, roll up the sleeves. You know, the one comment I might add, especially for those of you who are, you know, corporate real estate professionals managing real estate or managing your leases on behalf of your company in these different properties, the, the shoe is on the other foot. And... Your job right now and what, what we're seeing across the board is you're qualifying potential landlords the way landlords used to qualify you as a tenant. And it's very important for you to understand the capital stack of the building into which you're going and to understand the circumstance of the owner because there's a reference we use called zombie properties. And there, there are many circumstances in the marketplace where an owner owns the property and is making debt service, but his value is so far below the loan balance that he has absolutely no incentive to spend a dollar in his building because that dollar won't get him close enough to pay off the loan when it matures. But the lender can't do anything with it because he's current on his loan. So there are a lot of properties kind of waiting to mature. And those, those buildings and those circumstances where owners don't have good access to capital are ones that you as a tenant on behalf of your company 
need to understand because those are properties that aren't going to be responsive to your needs or aren't going to be able to, in some cases, pay you the money that you thought you were going to get for some kind of reimbursement or maybe a TI amount that you're owed down the road. And, and that's where a lot of the shift has happened because there are a lot of these uh, distressed situations that haven't really uh, hit the fan yet. And, and, and that's what you as a, a corporate real estate person, I'm sure you're getting advised that way and you've probably seen that, but it's still out there and the maturity chart highlights that because you know, we've got a lot of these maturities coming in the next couple of years and it's important to understand where your building is in that, in that stack. Sure. Um, I, I think there is going to be um, an, another shakeout amongst the real estate developers and investors, um, and it's happening right now. And, and you know, some of the big names you've all heard and read about are you know definitely in very difficult times and dire straits, and others are trying to fight for survival. A lot of a lot of our clients are fighting for survival, um, and you know if they're willing to to work with us um, to fund additional equity, then we want to, we want to keep these, you know, these guys alive and, and have them, you know, be able to come back into business. But there's going to be a shakeout. And, um, you know, some of the people that have been around for a long time may, you know, will not be playing again as developers and investors. So as these assets move into the hands of the lenders and they're able to get these assets into the market at the current market values. Um, where do you see, uh, what asset types do you see recovering earlier? Um, maybe if you could kind of touch on, you know, the, the four food groups. Um, you know, I think historically you've looked at industrial because that's usually a little bit of a leading indicator economically. And, um, you know, for office kind of trailing from an employment standpoint. Um, but I think some of the dynamics coming into this is a little bit uh, different too, because if you look at retailers and people that have warehoused a lot of the inventory, inventory levels have, were held pretty low even before coming into this. And so, um, you know, that's, uh, I don't have an answer, but uh, <laughs> other than it's probably gonna be pretty close among a lot of them. Um, you know, on the uh, office side, you may, I think historically that's lagged, but on the other hand, I think a lot of companies have cut down so far, again, before coming into this, that um, just to start generating revenue, they need bodies to, uh, to be out in the field and to do that. So, um, you know, multifamily here, um, uh, you know, is very dependent on employment levels, but I think because of the problems in the single family market and all the foreclosures that are either happening or about to happen, you know, there's going to be even more people in that market. So even though you still have elevated levels of unemployment, you know, but you probably have people that are still employed to some degree on homes where they're upside down, uh, does that not, you know, stimulate that a little bit sooner? So uh, kind of hard to tell for sure. But uh, Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, there was an <clears throat> article uh, about Apartments actually starting to register uh, rent, rental growth. Uh, I think it was the the resurvey, and um, it looks like there is a recovery starting. And I, they they cited San Francisco and Seattle's two markets where there was some positive rent growth. So I think that is probably going to be leading the charge. Um, I think the one that will be the slowest to recover would be retail, just because of the the massive overdevelopment of retail strip centers and lifestyle centers everywhere, and 
plus all the you know the, the changes within that industry and the bankruptcies. So office industrial, I think they'll come back as we have job growth and economic expansion. Well, the agency financing on multifamily has kept those prices from falling as much as other asset classes. Um, certainly, uh, we heard recently there was a you know, Phoenix of all places. There was a large multifamily project that uh, sold for a cap south of six percent. So, uh, it does seem that there's some deals getting done in the multifamily space. Some of that's also off of lower rents. Um, you know, so there's a lot of growth that's built into that, especially in the multifamily where you don't have the long-term leases. So, um, you know, it'd be kind of interesting to see uh, the growth there. You know, Jim, we talked about uh, unemployment and, and, and job growth and, and that being a, uh, a factor in demand for office space. And what type of companies right now in Chicago locally are you seeing that, that are actively looking for, for new space? Uh, feds, Eds, and Meds. That's our little reference. Federal government, education, medical. Those are the three divisions of our economy, especially around here, that... Uh, have had life and are taking space and spending money. So when we, you know, we've got, uh, we're, we're marketing a, a, a headquarter campus and it's old, but it's big floor plates. There's a training room that's like a dorm. We're calling the campuses, we're calling the hospitals. Uh, it, those are the areas that have funding and have really actually benefited from the recession. A lot of people that were working went back to school. Um, plus there's federal assistance and uh, so those, those have been the three drivers for us pretty, pretty clearly. You guys else want to find on that? No, I would agree. I mean, on the REIT side, in terms of who's been a little more active in, in acquiring things, it's more on the medical mm -hmm. uh, side and those that are kind of in the D.C. or, you know, the D.C. markets where fundamentals have been holding out, you know, more strongly than other parts of the country. And I guess maybe this show points to Chicago's uh, diversified economy because the, at the early part of the 2000s, what was driving a lot of office development were the large law firms. They were anchoring a number of the buildings along Wacker Drive. Um, and so now the law firms are receding out, but we've got these, you know, the feds, ends, and meds coming in, which is, right. is good because we need yep. those types of users to take space. Yeah. Keep it going. Yeah, one thing it's, that's interesting is, um, you know, the, there is virtually across the board um, from your local developers to your regional developers to your, to your large funds uh, have been handing the keys back to the, to the properties that, that are no longer uh, cash flowing. Um, you know, Rick, I'm just curious to see how um, Bank of America is sort of looking at the behavior of, of some borrowers and institutions in this market and and how that's sort of factoring into future lending decisions. Well, that, uh, John, that's a very um, important point um, that we, we look at the, the behavior of the borrowers today as we restructure and work out the loans. And if they're cooperative and they're working with us and doing anything they can, um, and you know, even if we can't get the loan made to work out as they'd like, we, we understand, and, and if there's cooperation that will, you know, be viewed favorably going forward as the market comes back and they're back in business. But if they're fighting us, um, throwing things in the bankruptcy, um, you know, that's viewed quite negatively. And 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 the bar behavior regarding lenders, not only us but other lenders, 
it will be very important as we go through the next cycle. Yeah, we're, we're getting a lot of uh, reports of borrowers getting bad legal advice. And uh, their attorneys are telling them, go in and uh, give the proverbial middle finger to your lender, which is just about the stupidest thing you possibly could do. Um, I got a call from somebody and they said, you know, I know you're representing XYZ Bank. Um, the borrower has been trying for, for months to, to talk to the bank about a forbearance. The bank won't return their calls, so their lawyer advised them not to pay their loan to get the bank's attention. And, um, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of that. Um, you know, uh, clearly uh, bankers have uh, long memories and, uh, you know, as, as Rick has said, people are going to be watching behavior in this environment very carefully going forward. Well, I thought this would be a good time to maybe get some questions from the audience. Go ahead. Question really uh, directed at Aaron. You know, uh, just thinking about the REITs, you know, it's a lower leverage environment. There's, uh, you know, rather than IR driven, they're going to be FFL driven. Do you see them coming to the market buying? I mean, you talk about. I mean, anecdotally, multifamily REITs, multifamily markets open. You know, you talk about uh, you know, deals with sub-six cap rates. Is anything else going on out there? Is it just multifamily, just kind of anecdotal? No. Uh, um, you know, I think some of the cap rates are, that are, they're seeing, particularly in multifamily, um, a lot of that's in core markets of, you know, California and, and uh, other areas where it's generally been harder for, you know, tighter or supply constraint. And um, recognizing that that's also at uh, lower rents, because uh, over the last 24 months, it's been very competitive there. So um, I think for uh, really large scale you know, acquisition opportunities, I think they're being very selective. Um, they know that there's a lot of stuff that has to get flushed out of the system. And so you know, they're able to afford to be a little bit more patient on that. Um, you know, I think it might be a little bit different for some of the private equity funds that have uh, raised capital and have a certain period by which they have to invest. And so, uh, you know, there could be a little more pressure on, on other, you know, large investors of real estate than, uh, than, than the REITs. Great. Uh, this uh, question is for Rick. Uh, Rick, can you talk a little bit more about uh, your view of what... Um, makes a borrower cooperative and working with the bank. Some examples of what will get you on the good list versus what will land you on the bad list and maybe some of the gray area. Um, well, I, you know, when I say cooperative, working, to, you know, working with the bank to forge a solution, and it's always, it's always a negotiation. Um, one of the things we look for, though, certainly when we're uh, extending and modifying loans, we're looking you know, generally for additional equity or collateral or guarantees to help support the loan, especially if we're at 120% loan to value, which means we're really underwater and at risk of a charge-off. So we're looking for the, the, the borrower, the sponsor, to you know, do what he can to support that. And, and that's really, I think, telling. And uh, we always talk about borrowers stepping up, and that's generally you know, doing, you know, putting in equity or collateral. And we do remember that. Um, the, you know, we, we always talk about when the borrowers come in and write the checks to make a pay down or pay amortization. That really um, 
resounds very well within the bank. And so I'd, I'd say that's a big part of it. Um, the borrowers that are um, you know, fighting you tooth and nail over issues and threatening, making threats, it just it doesn't play very well. If I uh, might add to that, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. Two other things I would uh, say is transparency becomes much more important from a lender's perspective and, uh, and communication. And, um, you know, when we see a situation where someone is upside down um, on values and, and they come and, say, and they say, here's everything that's happening and, and give us a more of a detail, we could work with them in finding the solution, whether that's bringing them another partner to come in um, and really help them try to uh, right the ship. Maybe I'll just throw in one different dynamic, and that is, for those service providers in the audience, if you are providing service to a borrower and sign a confidentiality agreement, and it turns out your borrower is really not the one that's going to be in control of the asset your lender is, then all of a sudden confidentiality agreements that we used to just pay no attention to create a real conflict because you've received all that information. And now you're really restricted from talking to the lender. And that's been one of the dynamics that we manage going through this, you know, because you have this change and it's hard you know you've got a client that's a borrower you want to work with them you've got a client that's a lender you want to help them at some point you might be getting the call and it's it's been one of the interesting consequences as, as we've gone through is the significance of confidentiality agreements and the information flow and managing to make sure that you're disclosing things properly and also not putting yourself in a situation that compromises you when the dust settles I have a uh just a quick uh, quote that from Time Magazine uh, it's, uh, about two weeks ago. It says, there's been political pressure on banks to lend, but the problem for some bankers is that uh, many businesses are debt shy. I'm aggressively trying to make loans right now, but they just don't want to borrow. Can you comment on that? Are you seeing any of that from your perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we are taking $2 trillion of, of debt out of the system is the number I've seen. Uh, last year, Banks' balance sheets shrunk by, I think, $750 billion. So there's still some uh, ways to go before you get to a point where banks can actually do organic growth. Um, essentially, the banking market is a shrinking market right now, which is one reason why there's enormous interest in the Chicago area on uh, these FDIC-assisted deals, because uh, the banks are looking at the market and the demand of credit and, uh, you know, the borrowers that want money right now are tough to lend to. And, you know, the successful businesses are really gearing down and putting off projects and trying to finance as much as possible with, with cash. Um, but, you know, eventually I think we'll get to an environment where lending begins to, uh, to pick up. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's the borrowers don't ask because they know the answer is not going to be good. You know, um, when it's clear that banks are, are lending and word gets around, people are going to be more encouraged to lend. Any other questions? Any other questions? Hi. Hello? Hi. Uh, quick question. What is the... Uh, what is your perspective on foreign investors in looking at commercial real estate opportunities here in the U.S.? I can, I can comment on that. Uh, 
we are very active with foreign investors. You know, typically they want trophy properties in downtown primary markets. And they, like everyone else, really closed the doors for a while. And some of the funds, uh, like Irish funds, for example, really, really took a hit to their economies and their ability to invest. We have seen uh, a, a resurgence of some of the funds. Some of the German funds are definitely back in the market looking for opportunities. Germans in particular have been in this market a long time. They've got local representation. They have historically been focused on very core stabilized assets, but are now willing to look at some opportunity assets knowing that our pricing is low. Uh, and some of the Middle Eastern funds have also uh, reemerged and, and have been proactive in trying to find opportunities. But generally across the board, the foreign money understands where we are in the cycle and would like to take advantage of it. So it's, it's there. And with respect to the, the bid-ask spread, um, who do you guys blame? <laughs> so the buyers or the sellers? Are the buyers too greedy or the sellers unrealistic? Uh, you know, I think both, um, because you, you know, from the seller perspective, their hands could potentially be tied, you know, especially if there's uh, debt out there, you know, not being able to make, uh, be the sole decision maker on those transactions. Uh, and the, uh, the buyers, you know, are also restricted by uh, availability of capital and at what cost. We. I'll jump on that because we've, we've been living that nightmare for a couple of years and, uh, with that bid-ass spread. And, and the, real, the real problem is when, when the markets are going down, it is so difficult for a seller to sell ahead of the market. And they get a number that they think is average. They don't really like it. They wait. And when they decide to take it, the market's moved away from them. And to get a number and to basically take it or take a retrade that you think is so bad when the market's declining is very hard for them to do. So the sellers were slow to respond. The buyers are, are very quick to say, you know what, we're drawing the line right here. This market's going down. And so the, the buyers have been pretty steady in terms of, you know, hey, we, we need this return. We can only get this amount of debt. We're worried about this rent growth. Their numbers have been here, and they've been scared of the market anyway. And so what's happened was when the market went down, the sellers weren't willing to take it. That bid-ask spread was huge. The buyers were here. The, the sellers were coming down like this as they were educated to how bad the markets were. Now the buyers are coming up a bit because the debt markets are starting to return. And so we're much closer to a meeting of the minds today than we ever have been in the last two years. And that's, it's been a movement of both. I would say we, we went from an environment where you were looking at a property and underwriting it based on a pro forma cash flow essentially looking at the existing cash flow and underwriting a premium to that, uh, to an environment where you're looking at the last 12 months, you're looking at the current cash flow, and you're discounting all the rents. Um, you know, we're, we recently were valuing a 10-unit uh, retail property for a lender in the Twin Cities, and um, you know, the appraised value was based on a stabilized value of 22 bucks a square foot. And the all the rents in that market were 12 bucks a square foot. So, you know, I don't think we're getting to 22 in, in that project anytime soon. Why don't we kind of address that, you know, from Bank of America's perspective. Um, you know, let's talk about kind of how you're looking at current cash flows, future cash flows, and so on. Well, we're really focused on current cash flows. Um, um, and I think a lot of underwriting we really never tried to trend rents too much in, in apartments and things like that, but I think in competitive environments, you might project the rents a little bit higher. 
Certainly the CMBS did that, though. They were underwriting very aggressive future rents four to five years out, and that's frankly how they, they you know, justified higher loan amounts on inflated values. Um, we've always really been focused on the current, you know, the current cash flow and what we think is stabilized is, and, and the, you know, there'll be a continued focus on that. Jim Byers, how are they? I mean, I'm sure the sellers are talking the way things are right now, and buyers are saying, well, it's going to get worse. I mean, that kind of goes back to the bid-ask spread. I mean, that... Well, you know, it, it happens so quickly. When Rick and I were talking about this. When our market, the real estate has always been kind of a slow-moving niche in the minds of a lot of people, and I guess speed is all relative. Uh, I was amazed in the 90s downturn how quickly that happened, and I was really amazed here in our communication and technology create this quickness of information flow and so our markets really do change quickly and, and they are affected by perception and we're definitely seeing a change and so when we kind of come back to mindset in, in the deals we're working on and the niche that we have we've seen this change I mean the, the outlook is positive and the question is how positive not you know is it, are we going to do this? Everyone's decided in the, in the business we're in right now, it's not going like this anymore. It's going to go this, but is it this, or is it this, or is it this for a while, and then like this? And that's how people are trying to make their bets. And the sellers in our markets have stabilized enough where you ask brokers to give you a broker opinion of value, and right now the range is all going to be pretty tight. We, we talked to the buyers. We've seen some transactions. We know what their yields are going to be. We can get quotes from lenders that haven't changed too much here. And so... And the changes now that we're seeing in the lending community has been an improvement, not a pullback. And so I guess kind of coming back to maybe that point is we do see a narrowing of this gap and the first signs of more transaction activity and, and an environment where we will see some trades, environment where the, the sellers understand where the market is, they're going to accept it, and the buyers are comfortable deploying their capital because their outlook is better. Aaron, anyone want to say yeah, same. Yeah. Good. Well, we learned a lot today. Uh, we learned Sam Zell's wrong. Um, <laughs> I won't say that too loud. Uh, Bank of America's lending. Uh, the REITs are active. Uh, the bid-ask spread is, is narrowing. Uh, any kind of final closing thoughts from the rest of the panel? I don't know. That's pretty open-ended. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. It's really been a nice lunch. Yeah. Thank you for having us. John, thank you very much for uh, moderating. Thanks to all our panelists today for everything. Um, please uh, don't forget to fill out your forms again. Um, and also, reminder, afterwards, there's a little uh, kind of breakout session for, to ask any questions of the board members about uh, getting involved in Cornet. Thank you very much.